Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started here. Now let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy we have in being children. Thank you for the joy of Advent and how uh, the world that was languishing in darkness saw a great light. And Father, we know that that's our testimony. And our own souls were languishing in darkness until you revealed your great light to us. And we're so thankful that you did. Help us to rejoice in what we have in Christ and help us to be quick to share it with others. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. Would you guide us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. As we look at the history of the church, there's been a... And I'm going to challenge and struggle to define the person and work and teaching of Jesus Christ. And there have been a number of heresies that have sprung up over the years that either downplayed the humanity of Jesus or downplayed his divinity. And we can understand why people would fall into these misunderstandings because we have nothing else to compare Jesus to. He is the God of all eternity who has taken on humanity and lived among us for a season and is forever the God-man. So he is truly God and truly man in one person forever. And so the human mind wants to give understanding and so there will be some ideas that will downplay his deity. His divinity by focusing on what these things are things that the divine could not do. So Jesus was hungry, or Jesus was weak, or Jesus, you know, uh, didn't know everything. But then there'd be others that just can't quite wrap their heads around how God can become fully human. So they upplay his deity and downplay his humanity. And it's been an ongoing struggle that's gone on in the history of the church. And the, the key and the challenge that we have in the Christian life is that we need to ride on the horse of truth that God is fully, truly God and truly man, not fall off one side of the horse where we overemphasize his humanity and downplay his deity, and not fall off the other side of the horse by upplaying his humanity and denying no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So, see if you're paying attention this morning. So we want to make sure that we, we confess who he is. Well, that started early on in the history of the church. And early on, because the, as the gospel was penetrating different areas for the first time and taking on the philosophies of the culture, particularly the Greco-Roman culture with their pantheon of gods and goddesses and philosophers and all kind of thinking, how do we present this God-man to these different cultures? And... There's been a lot of ink that has been spilled, writing book after book, generation after generation. It is good for us to read them, but we just need to recognize that that battle continues today. That there are all kinds of Christs that are preached out there. And how do we know who is the true biblical Christ and who isn't, and where's the false teacher and where's the true teacher, and what can we, what are some skill sets that we need, what are some knowledge? Well, Paul um, is addressing a situation like that in the city of Colossae. This is a young church that was started in the middle of the first century, and it was not a church that was founded by Paul. So that makes it unique that it's one of the churches he writes to, but as far as we know, he was not the founder. 
He was the founder of the church in Thessalonica and Philippi and in Corinth and other places. But he was not the founder of the church in Colossae. Now, Colossae, you can locate it there in Asia Minor, where, where it had a certain influence. Um, influence in economics, influence in culture. Um, but by the time that Paul writes this letter, by the time we get to the first century, some of the surrounding cities had overtaken it in importance. Laodicea, Hierapolis, among others. So actually, Colossae was kind of a backwood city by this point, when Paul is writing it. Um, they're all part of, all these cities were in this valley, and, and what we know as Turkey today, what Paul had gone through. But Paul never visited this city personally, as near as we can tell. We find no record in the book of Acts, or in the book itself, of Colossians, that Paul visited. So, how did the church get there? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. Um, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, when we have the Pentecost and the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit, it's possible that some people that were present in Jerusalem on that day brought it back to that part of um, Asia Minor. Okay? Um, what's probably more likely is you look at where Colossians or Colossae is and you see that it's off the main road and the main road would lead, among other places, to Ephesus. So it's possible then that where there was a growing Christian population in Ephesus, perhaps they brought it. This is all speculation. We simply do not know. But we do know that Paul spent time in Acts chapter 19 where it says that he stayed in Ephesus. And there's a, this interesting language in Acts 19.10 It says this. Um, this continued for two years. We're talking about Paul being in Ephesus for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul stayed in Ephesus for a period of time. And it's likely that some of the disciples that were there as they moved across would have brought the gospel. That's just speculation. We don't, we don't really know. But we do know that Paul never went to Colossae. So that's significant, and that it's one of the letters that shows up in the New Testament, even though he had not visited that city. It shows that it's God putting together his book, not man putting together a book and trying to attribute it to God. Out of interest, how far is uh, emphasis from Colossae? I don't know. How about Lynch? So somehow this Epaphras was one who was involved in bringing the gospel, but we're still trying to figure out when that would have happened. Okay? Um, except that Paul says, I knew Epaphras. He was a co-worker. So 
uh, that's about the farthest we can take it. Epaphras was a co-worker of Paul, and Epaphras was involved in bringing the gospel. Exactly when that happened, under what circumstances, we can't go beyond that. At least that I've been able to track down. Um, but so this city was not one of the major ones. You know, Corinth was a major city of culture and industry and philosophy. Philadelphia was a Latin city that had major influence. Uh, Ephesus was a city of great importance. Colossae was a backwoods city. And the fact that Paul wrote one of his letters there um, is interesting. Because Paul tells us that he had a lot of responsibilities. He was taking care of the different churches, and yet he found time to write to this one church. Why did he write to this one church? Well, he gives us an idea of what the meaning of his ministry is in chapter 1, verses 28-29 of Colossians. In chapter 1, verses 28-29, he says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the, the reason for his ministry is he wants every believer that he encounters to be fully mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I told you. This is not just a, a habit for him. This is not just a hobby. This is his lifestyle. Okay, Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So why do you want to write to this church? Well, he is interested in seeing the believers there also come to maturity in Christ. That they would know how to handle the Word of God. They would know who Christ truly is. He says, I work at this energetically. It is His passion. It is His calling. It's not just something, well, I'm a weekend warrior when I get a few hours and would preach the gospel. This was His labor of love as a way of life. And He wanted the people in Colossae as well to have this fullness of who Christ is to the point where He was willing to work hard. So. Well, we're just. Is this a typo in the next one, the church that Paul didn't found? It says a church that Paul founded, but we thought it was it not a church that Paul founded. Oh, it was, it was not a church. Not okay, so there's no one. We have to add not a. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we were just trying to understand it. <laughs> we didn't want to bother you. That's why. We're <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Yes, there's going to be some of those. So yeah, just go ahead and put them out. I don't want to keep perpetuating the, the errors. Another thing that shows us what he might have been dealing with, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8, he warns the believers in Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, if we were simplistic, we would look at that verse and say, do away with philosophy, period. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, do it away with this philosophy that is in that region that is giving a false impression of Christ. Because Paul himself uses philosophy in many of his argumentations and many of his own discussions. And so, it's not just throw out philosophy for philosophy's sake, it's the wrong types of philosophy. In fact, philosophy properly used is just a tool to guide people to the truth. Can you give me an example of Paul using philosophy? Uh, I mean, uh, Acts chapter 17. Okay. Just read, read his discourse to the, to the uh, 
people of Athens, he brings in their poets, he brings in their philosophers, he observes their worldview, and he, he, he attacks them, as it were, at their point of worldview, and then leads them to points of the cross. Okay? So, we actually, if we want to have a conversation with anybody in any culture, we have to have some philosophy, because we have to be able to understand how to enter into their worldview to have a dialogue with them. And all philosophy means is just a love of knowledge. And so we, we, I understand that we need to stay away from bad philosophical ideas. But the idea of philosophy is just tools that help us to understand logic and how to discern what are good arguments and what are bad, and how to use truth in all of our conversations. So somehow this church in Colossae has fallen prey to a deficient understanding of Christ. And this deficient understanding of Christ is based on well, as we see, human tradition and their different philosophical ideas. And so Paul is going to spend time writing to this church about the greatness of Christ. And we have some of the richest declarations of who Christ is in the book of Colossians. Um, now, you probably have noticed similarities that I have in my notes between this letter and the letter to the Ephesians. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. They're written at the same time when Paul was in prison. And so there's going to be some similar ideas about what is good theology, who is Christ, how is God working in us, and how do we live this out? So just as the book of Ephesians was divided into two chapters and three chapters, very um, practice, a very deep theology about who Christ is, chapters 1, 2, and 3, how to live it out, chapters 4, 5, and 6, that's in Ephesians. It's very similar in Colossians. Two chapters of very high, rich theology, but then two chapters of how to live it out. Um, we, need a, we need help to know how to live it out. Okay? Now, Ephesians was written as a general letter. Colossians seems much more personal in its tone. Um, mentioning of names. Um, perhaps it's because of what we're dealing with as well, the situation. They don't fully understand Christ. He, he really he wants to attack the human traditions and bring in who Christ is. So we can call them twin letters if we wanted, Ephesians and Colossians, but they're not identical twins. They would be more like fraternal twins. They have a similar origin, similar content, but they're not exactly the same. Okay? And they would have been written about the same time. Now, Colossians is one of those books that skeptics love to attack. They say, no, Paul, Paul didn't write it. Hmm? There's your answer right there. Paul didn't write it. The theology is too advanced. There's too much other ideas. And then Paul could not have written this one. Just like he didn't write Ephesians. He only wrote First and Second Timothy. He only wrote First and Second Corinthians, Romans, things like that. And... You know, there, there, there's a whole cottage industry of skepticism about Christianity where professors justify their position as a professor, as a writer, as a publisher, just to attack Christianity. And they make a great deal of money doing it. And most of it just looks silly. Most of it gets taken down. And the next generation comes along and the guy, another guy brings up the same arguments, the same accusations against Paul as if they've never even read any of the literature they've gone on before. Most of the time, our best thing is just to turn the page and forget it. Because I have no solid arguments to point against Paul writing this letter from a Roman prison in about 62 AD. Okay? That's what the church has historically affirmed. So I'm not really all that concerned about what the German rationalists of the 1800s thought. Okay? 
um, nor what Bart Ehrman, nor what other skeptics of our day think, because they don't stand up to scrutiny, and by the way, they avoid debating anyone that will actually expose them in public. They pick on the, the unprepared or the less than scholarly, because the few times that Bart Ehrman has been in a public debate with an actual prepared scholar, he has been embarrassed, and he won't ever do it again. It's too much money for him to make attack Christianity to spend time with real scholars. Okay? So, just saying, but that name will come up. Okay? So, he wrote it. It's one of the prison epistles. So, again, what are the four prison epistles? We've talked about this. Galatians? No. Philippians. What? Philippians. 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 Yes. Okay. So those are the four uh, prison epistles that Paul wrote about the same time. Okay. It's just good for us to remember we have the prison epistles and we have the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles will be First and Second Timothy and Titus. And you can tell because he's writing to young men that are pastors in their churches and he's helping them to be leaders in those churches. Okay, well here he's writing from prison. Okay? Actually, if I, uh, the book of Colossians breaks down very nicely as far as how to present it. The first two chapters, the supremacy of Christ in the church. In fact, if you just want one word to understand the book of Colossians, the, the supremacy of Christ. Supremacy. Okay? And we'll look at that beautiful expression of Christ's supremacy in chapter 1 uh, momentarily. Now the second, second half is the submission of the church to Christ. So, great theology on who Christ is, and then two chapters on how to live it out. How to practically live out this Christian life that we're called to. Uh, in struggle and faithfulness because Christ is great. Okay? Um, Colossians is one of those books that's fun to study because it's short. <laughs> and we tend to like the shorter books because we, we can see the end game. We can figure out we're going to get there soon. You know, not, not a lot of groups will start into a book chapter or study on Isaiah knowing that if they're going to do it right, it's going to take probably about two years to get through it. Okay? Most people like that six to eight to ten week window and Colossians allows itself to get in that short of a window. Plus it's just very meaty. It is very insightful. It is very encouraging. Okay? Uh, but... You know, I'm, I'm passionate enough about the Word that I just want it all, you know. So I'm willing to take the time, whatever it takes, to get through any one book. Which, by the way, this is not planned, leads me into what's going to happen in the first of the year. So you're, this breaking news, you're going to be the first ones to hear of this, okay? We're going to do through, uh, uh, all through Advent season, we're going to look at the Songs of Christmas. In the Gospels, dealing around the birth narratives of Christ, they're all kind of songs. We're going to look at the songs of Christmas. And we're actually going to continue in the songs of Christmas until the day after Christmas, December 26th, which is actually the second day of Christmas. Okay? And a liturgical calendar. <laughs> so, um, and then I'll take the first week of January off, preparing other things. I'll be here. Brian will preach. And starting the second week in January, we're going to take on the Gospel of Matthew. Right. And pack your suitcase and buckle up because it's going to be a long trip. <laughs> We're going to take our time weaving our way through the Gospel of Matthew because now that we've looked at a number of Old Testament books, 
that point to Christ. Matthew, a Jewish author, writing to a Jewish audience, is showing them how the Scriptures point to Christ. Over and over and over again, we have an expression like, and the prophet was fulfilled. Or this was done to fulfill what was said through the prophet Jeremiah. And at times we'll take little jump outs from that passage, go back to the Old Testament prophets, look at what's going on there, and look at how Jesus is all that Israel was hoping for. And how he is the culmination. And so, um, who knows how long that's going to take. Okay? It is open-ended. And I'm not going to tell you right now how long I anticipate taking, but it's longer than three months, I'll just say that. Okay? <laughs> We're going to take our time going through, and we'll jump out at times for Advent, at times for Easter, things like that, maybe a summer break. So, there you go. Insider information. Okay? We'll be able to pull things together. In any case, let's get back to the book of Colossians. So, really simple outline. And I, I guess it's delightful to actually look at all the things that are there. If you expand it just a little more, then break these sections down. This would be your preliminary preaching outline on how you would go through the book. But even there, you could, you could take Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and you could spend weeks just in that passage. This, this hymn, this uh, poetry that Paul wrote to show about the greatness of Christ. Okay? Um, but it, it breaks down in approximately those main sections of the church, and then you get individual sections um, of the letter, and then individual sections of the letter. So, the thing about Colossians is Paul fires a lot of information and a lot of subjects at us in a few verses. You know, it's really boom, 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 boom. He's just throwing things at us. Um, and he doesn't take a lot of time to explain. You know, just throw a bunch of different things in there one after the other. And I'm trying to imagine him being in prison and he hears that they've got some wrong ideas about Christ. And you can feel the passion and urgency with which he writes. He wants them to have a true understanding of who Christ is. There's a pastoral concern that they're wandering off and denying aspects of Christ that they can't deny because they'll end up denying the gospel. So the main theme of the book, then, obviously the first one is the supremacy of Christ. Supremacy of Christ. And let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. So, he's going through his greetings, first, let's say, 14 verses, but even in those, those greetings, you have wonderful theology about the nature of the gospel, about forgiveness, about having wisdom, bearing fruit, about being good Christians, and all that great theology about what has happened to us at the moment that we believe. Then he gets to verse 15, and he's going to go on a very extensive description of who Christ is. Now, we're at the beginning of the Advent season. Alright? The babe of Bethlehem. Of God stepping out of eternity into time and space to come and live among us. And so this is a Christmas message that we have here. Okay? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. We can stop there. We can have a pretty extensive sermon on what that means. That he is the image of the invisible God. What is the image of God? And how does Christ portray it? 
the firstborn of all creation. He would talk about what that means. It does not mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses mean, that he was just simply a created being. He was the highest of the order that he was in. Okay? This is the Jesus that we worship. Okay? For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether it's thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Okay? Now if we just focus and look at each word and what it means. It talks about his Christ and how glorious he is. You see why we should be the people who celebrate the most during Christmas? Because of this one that became incarnate. This one who's the creator of all things. Through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Think about that. Before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now this is exactly what we saw in the writer of Hebrews. who said he upholds all things by the word of his power. Okay? Here in him all things hold together. All things. He's the creator of all. The sustainer of all. Through him all things were made and for him. He holds all things together. At the subatomic level, we do not know what holds an atom together. We know what it's called. It's called a super force. Or a powerful force. Or the different words we use. But we don't know what it is. We just know that it is. Because when you split the atom, there's a tremendous release of power, right? Nuclear bomb. Atomic weapon, I should say. Okay? And he holds that together. We don't know what it is. We just know that it is. And then if we separate it, all the creation goes out of existence. Here it says, he holds all things together. He's the sustainer of all of creation. Through him all things remain, and in him all things hold together. That verse alone should be enough to help us get through each day. Right? And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's just the sanest. When life happens. Because it hasn't happened outside of his control. If anything ever happens outside of Christ's control, don't worry about whatever your problem is. Because we've got bigger problems than that. Right? Right. Yeah. This, is our, this is our Jesus. This is the one we present at Christmas time. Okay? He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And everything he might be what? The preeminence. Preeminence. We know what eminence is. That's what royalty has. Eminence. His eminence, right? He might have the preeminence. First. First. Okay? We, we forget that so often. We want to our day just blind. He's blind that he's holding all things together. That's right. So when we're busy trying to hold things all together on our own, which we do, he's the one holding us together. Amen. <laughs> well, we really are kind of silly, aren't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, think about that one for a while. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That he should choose us. Hmm? That he should choose us. And that he would choose us, but just... Who he really is. He's not just a man. He's not just another fellow human being. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another Bible teacher. He's not just another redeemer, small r. 
He is the fullness of God in bodily form. And just so that we get that right, Paul will repeat that in Acts chapter 2, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What is Paul doing there with very specific language? He's upholding full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus in one person. Now if your brain is starting to get a little bit sore at this point, you're in a good spot. Christ is incomparable. That in all things he might have a preeminence. My little brain cannot fully understand the fullness of man and the fullness of God in one person. Yeah, my mind bends at this point, okay? But what really needs to bend is my knee. Amen. Bend my knee before Christ. And say you are as you say you are, and nothing less. So as Paul is writing this church in Colossae, he's trying to get their attention to say, get Jesus right. And get the right Jesus. <laughs> okay. Good. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, the way I look at that is that there is a hostile world against Christ, against God, in the heavenlies, the spiritual realm. It has an impact in the physical realm. It is among image bearers of God, many who are in hostilities of him. He is going to reconcile all of that in the sense that because he is preeminent, it will all be domesticated, as it were, and put under his feet. Isn't that what Paul says in the church in Corinth? Everything will be put under his feet. Those hostile evil forces, those hostile sinners, everything that conspires against Christ, he has already defeated at the cross and resurrection and will bring it all under his dominion one day. Therefore, we're on the winning side. There is no other team to join. Our captain has already won the victory and now is saying, follow me in the victory train. Okay? Which is actually the image that is carried on in Corinthians. Get in the victory parade. Because our leader is one. He is conquered. Okay? So after we have this, you know, this beautiful description of the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, he adds a couple of other things. Verse 27. Pastor? To, yes? I have a question about sure. before then. Sure. In verse 23. Yeah. He's saying that there's these good things, but then he says it's if we continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Okay. So I'm wondering, is a condition for is that a condition for us to receive these blessings? So the <laughs> the bigger theology behind it is um, the gift of God to us will result in the perseverance of the saints. <clears throat> That's the gospel. But the saints themselves must actively persevere in the faith. So we have to believe what's right, we act upon what's right, we do what's right, we apply what's right. All these things go side by side. So passages like this serve as an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement to those who are in Christ. Yeah, let's keep on. Let's keep on doing this because this is what's going to happen. To those that are not keeping on, it's a warning to them. Are you really in it? Okay? 
So we have different examples of that. Second uh, uh, Timothy, I think. I'll have to look up the verse. But the verse says, The Lord knows those who are His, but let everyone who names the name of the Lord turn away from iniquity. So you see both sides of it. The Lord knows those who are His, and He holds them in His hands, and none can pluck them out. And the ones that are in His hands, and none can pluck them out, are the ones that are actively pursuing faith and persevering in So that's what he's saying here. That's as a warning and as an encouragement, depending on your heart condition at the time. Okay? So Paul, uh, God never wants us to be in doubt if we are walking in steadfastness with His Spirit. Never want, he wants us in assurance. If we're walking in rebellion, then he does want us to doubt so that we're clinging back to the grace of Christ and his preeminence. Okay? I think half the time I'm walking around asleep. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not just overwhelmed with the deity of Christ, right. and that's wrong. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I forget what actually this is all about. Right. And so, what your reminder, which is the experience we all have, right? I mean, there's a lot of times we walk through the day and we don't have a Christ consciousness right now. Right? We're thinking about 110 other things or more. Okay? That's why we need the body of Christ to speaking to us, reminding us, encouraging us, cajoling us, rebuking us, edifying us, so that we continue to persevere on that path of truth. Have you left room for God in the situation? What, what, what would God say to you? What does God want to do in here? Have you given it to Christ? Are you repenting of a sin that you're holding on to? We need that interaction. We saw that in Ephesians, right? How we need to address each other and speak to each other. Paul says the same thing in, in Colossians. I just want everyone missing out on the power that is there for me at any time. And I'm just cool. Not good. Right. That's why we're growing. Okay. See, we are, you know, in the simplest way, I would say we are human beings. Okay. We are being. We are. We are moving towards. We're not human arrivals. We haven't. We haven't. You know, we've not arrived where we're going to be. We're in process. We're becoming. But we're not yet all that we need to be. Yes. So, in reference to that, are you capable of being plucked out of his hand at that point if you're struggling with that? Plucked out of his hand? No. But the Bible is clear that there are false confessions of faith. Correct. So, it's at that point we test our hearts and say, what am I trusting in? If I'm trusting in Christ, then we apply the promises that are ours in Christ. If it's, well, I've been a good person. I went to church most of my life. I brought my kids to Sunday school. I'll get them like, mm -hmm. You need to recheck your heart. You really trust in grace here, the grace of Christ, not what you've done, but what has been done for you. And I would say this, as someone who, by the grace of God, has been in full-time ministry now for 30-some-odd years, doubt is okay. Yeah. Because what happens with doubt is it forces us to really pursue what is true. And doubt turns us away from ourselves to focus on who is God really. And then we cling to those truths. So doubt can be a great teacher. What the devil wants the doubt to become is a hammer. And then we can beat ourselves up. Doubt, 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 doubt. It's not like God will lead us through seasons like that of doubt because he wants us to turn in and pursue him. And when we find our treasure in him, the doubts dissipate. 
The difference between the believing and the unbelieving world is the Christian, whenever he faces doubt, heads for the Word. Right. Not for Bart Ehrman. <laughs> right. Right. The one that is in Christ, when he doubts, gets up, runs to Christ, cries out to Christ. Yeah. The non-believer heads to the bar. You know, or, or something similar, you know, or some other philosopher that is going to draw them away. Make them feel good, but not ultimately answer the question. Yeah. The same way we feel weak or fearful yeah. during the day. Yeah. Boy, does that push us to Christ yeah. to remind yeah. us, yeah. you know, I need you. Yeah. <laughs> so fear and weakness is good, you know, as long as we know what to do with it. So the first thing is, yeah. the first thing is admitting it. Because yeah. all of us, if we're willing to admit it, we we got a little bit of a freaky cat inside of us, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. And so the first thing is admitting I'm afraid of the Lord. Yeah. And I, I need you to be my courage. I need you to be my strength. I'm taking this fear to you. Yeah. I'm taking my incompetence, my weakness, my fear, my inability, and I'm resting on your courage, your strength, your ability, your hope. And then we find, wow, wow, I can walk with the Lord. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. What we want to read here in verse 23 is, if you continue in good deeds, if you continue doing the right thing, if you continue as a competent and successful right. member of the Christian community, established and firm, then, you know, your your hope is, is real. No, that's not what it says. Right. Um, but even even when we read this, we tend to insert that in there. Right. That's what he's talking about. No, it's not what he's talking about. Right. If you continue in your faith, trusting in the Lord to make good of all your half-hearted and faltering efforts, so then then the rest of it says not shifting from what? From the hope of the gospel. gospel. Yeah. That's where the encouragement comes in. Yeah. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. What is the gospel? This preeminent one has redeemed us. Yeah. And has put us in his family. That's the hope of the gospel. When doubts come, when struggles come, when I blow it, because I do. What am I, what am, what's my next move? Is it to get out the bag of rocks and start stoning myself in condemnation? <laughs> Or is it to cling to the hope of the gospel and say, nothing in my hands I bring to go to that cross I cling. That my, my, my righteousness, my qualification is in Christ. Period. Okay? Yeah, was there a question? No. No. Also, you don't go wear a hair shirt? What? A hair shirt? A hair shirt. A camel's hair shirt. Oh. <laughs> Something that's rough and... and you don't, ah, you don't self-flagellate. You don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, by his wounds here. <laughs> so he goes on, and verse twenty-seven he says, "To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery." What is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That God is involving Jews and Gentiles in this glorious body of Christ. So, who is this Christ? Who, how is He supreme? Well, He is He is the glory. He's our hope of glory. Okay? Um, 
chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, at the end, he said that to reach all... Okay, let me just read the whole verse. That their hearts may be encouraged. How are they going to be encouraged? Being knit together in love. What's the reason? So that... Where did I just lost my place? To reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This Christ who is the fullness of God revealed is the mystery of God. How can God inhabit a human being? How can God be a human being? That's the mystery. That's this Christ that we proclaim at Christmas. So we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. He's our hope of glory. He is the mystery of God. He's all these things in verses 15 to 20. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, In Him whom, so Christ, are hidden what? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Who needs knowledge? Who needs wisdom? I need to be in Christ. I need to find it in Christ. And I will find it in Christ as I pursue it. Okay? Now let's go on to our victory. Okay? As we continue down chapter 2, we're getting a little bit out of order. That's okay. We might not finish this week. <laughs> Verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Fullness of God in Christ in a human body. And you, believers in Colossae, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So let's point back to who he's over in chapter 1, right? So the fullness of God in Christ and the fullness of Christ in us. We have the fullness of Christ. You see the fullness there? In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So it's not a physical medical operation. It's the circumcision of the heart that puts the heart in the right place before God. Um, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this is the new birth. This is given a new heart. A heart that has been circumcised, that now is sensitive to the things of God, has new life. It wants to live for Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, we're not talking water here. We're talking the fact that we died with Him. In our union with Christ, we died with Him. We are raised with Him in Christ. Okay? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection because the same power that raised Christ from the dead will raise us from the dead one day because we are in Christ. Now we have the gospel. And you who were dead. Not sick, not in a bad way, not to quote the famous philosopher and Princess Bride, the only mostly dead. <laughs> dead. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. Who brought us from the dead? God. Whose work is it? God. If we're in Christ, how can we waver in unbelief? We shouldn't, because the hope of the gospel says don't waver in unbelief. Keep your focus there. And how did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay? Now, I'm still old-fashioned, so I actually get a bill that comes to my house. Okay, get the water bill, get the electric bill, okay? 
and what do I do when I get the electric bill? Cry. Yeah, I right? <laughs> cry. Well, after I cry, I thank God for his provision, right? I write a check, put it in the mail. I'm too cheap to go online because PG&E wants me to pay 2% or something if I pay online. Too cheap to do that, right? Pay the stamp, okay? So I send it off to him, and what happens on the next bill that comes? It shows that I paid. It means that previous debt is what? Canceled, right? When Jesus hung on the cross, all of our sins were nailed to him. Now, the official charge against him that was over his head was Jesus, King of the Jews, okay? But God made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So that means all of my sins and all of your sins were nailed on that cross with Jesus. Past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. And as they were nailed, they were paid for. So we're not getting a bill next month. And they were canceled. Yeah, that's right. So, when we stand before the Holy Throne of God, we are in Christ, we are not going to get a bill that says, here's all the sins you've committed, now you're going to spend eternity paying them off. <laughs> that's what the unrepentant be. They will be given the bill at the end and they'll be in hell for paying it off. But Christ went to hell for us, not literal physical hell. Hell, cross was hell. Okay? Went through hell and back for us. Paid the price for our sins. So that when God looks at the ledger of our lives, all the way down the list is paid in full by the blood of Christ. Okay, that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Paul is telling us. He's saying, don't miss this Jesus who set it all aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. And here's the victory parade. Because what would the Roman leaders do when the Romans would go and conquer a city? They would capture the military leaders that they had defeated. They would capture the soldiers. They would capture the slaves. And they would march them back to Rome. And there would be a big pomp and circumstance as they came into Rome with the victor, the leaders marching in front on their victory horses. Okay? And behind them would be the soldiers that they had defeated in chains along with all the animals that had been conquered. Okay? You can imagine after walking behind hundreds and hundreds of animals and you're one of the slaves, what do you slosh them through? Okay? <laughs> to humiliate them. To show that they were the victory, they were part of the victory parade, the victory train. That's the image that's behind in Colossians 2. Jesus Christ, when he conquered on the cross in his resurrection, will lead us in a victory parade that will humiliate all of his enemies. All of those that he defeated, all of the spiritual forces, all of the evil that were opposing him, they will be humiliated. But not us. Not because of us. But because of Christ, all of our debts are paid in full. Okay? That's powerful imagery. The Colossians would have captured that. And they would decide whose parade you want to be in. You want to be in the victor's parade? You want to be in the conquered parade? And we want to be among the victors because we have the conqueror who is conquered. Okay? That's our Christ. That's what Christ, what Christmas celebrates. Yeah. 
To carry the analogy of paying bills a little farther, um, occasionally we have somebody coming to us and say, hey, you didn't pay this. And we can trust in that receipt that right. says, right. this has been paid. Yeah. Satan comes against us right. and says, hey, you, you, you still owe this. You're, you're guilty. You, you need to pay this. And we say, no, here's, here's my bill. Here's my receipt. The bill has been paid. Yeah. Sort of in the same vein, we are sort of brought up in this world that do something good for him. Do something good for them. And that wins your favor. Yeah. And it's often hard to realize not me. That would be the result. The result of us being firm in Christ is what? But it's, it's, it's not getting the fruit to have the root. You have to have the root for there to be the fruit. And a lot of people do the opposite. They want to start with the fruit and then go back to the root, and that just doesn't work. Okay? It doesn't happen. You can't have fruit without roots. Okay? That's the Christ that we proclaim. That's the preeminent one, the supremacy of Christ. So you can understand in this church that had never been visited by the Apostle Paul, as near as we can tell, gets this letter from the Apostle Paul. And we're just... You can imagine the reaction as they're hearing this letter read to them about the greatness of this Jesus. And what would their response be? Wow, we need to get rid of this bad teaching that we've been following. We need to stop listening to these false ideas about Christ. We need to uphold a powerful, wonderful image of who Christ is. And then he's going to move on and say, because Christ is so great, here's how you're going to live with each other. Okay? And then he spends a couple of chapters about how we live out the Christian life individually and then as, as a community of believers and how we live it out in our families and, and in the workplace and on and on it goes. Okay? I think the work of the Holy Spirit is so uh, obvious in this particular mode because it's so easy to go there's no way somebody can pay for all of my sins. And, and you know that people believe that. Maybe. Right. They don't take that step of faith. And only God can give us that understanding. Correct. And that's the hope of the gospel that we're to cling to in verse 23. Okay? Um, if, if all things are held together in Him, and He's the first among all, and if He is the one that died on the cross, as we see here, that that uh, paid the debt uh, that takes our eyes off ourselves. So we'll put it on him. Um, and that's what we need Monday morning at 10 a.m. that phone starts ringing. That's what we need Thursday afternoon when blow a tire on the way home. Whatever, you know, it's like, like Christ is in this. And he knows. And I can invite him in. And that helps us then to develop that sense of walking in the presence of God on a regular basis. As the reformers would say, Coram Deo, in the face of God. We're always walking in the face of God, before God, because He's preeminent. Okay? So, with the few minutes we have, let's look at number two, at least a little bit. The impact of being in Christ. Well, we just read several of them, didn't we? The impact. The fact that we are redeemed. Bought out of slavery brought in Christ, that we're made alive in Christ, chapter 2, verse 13, that we're reconciled to God through Christ, chapter 1, verse 22, that we're buried and risen with Christ, chapter 2, 11, 12, that He died for our sins, He atoned for them, chapter 2, 13, 15, that we 
are now hidden with Christ. Chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ. Now, the, the word if there really should be translated as since. Since then you have been raised with Christ. What? Seek the things that are above. You see God's role and our role? He raised us up with Christ. Now we live it out by thinking about the things on high. Okay? But Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Setting our minds on things above. As you're asking, how do we do this? Well, how do we do it? Well, we think about who He is, who we are, and what He's done for us. And who, where we are. For you died, verse 3, meaning our old way of living to the flesh, according to Adam, according to the ways of normal humanity. We died in, in Adam, so that we live in Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, that's a mystery that we're going to need to chew on for quite a while. But we're hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear to me. Do we say that? That Christ is my life? Paul, when he wrote to the, Philipp uh, he wrote to the Philippians, he said, to live is Christ. And now when he writes to the Colossians, he says, my life is Christ. Right? Christ is my life. To live is Christ because Christ is my life. You see how it's a common theme as he writes. It's the, over, it's the preeminent controlling influence and power in my life is that I'm hidden in Christ. And he is my life. And then it will go on. Therefore, <laughs> because you're hidden in Christ and he is your life, now live out the gospel. Put to death see the deeds of the flesh, your sin, your bad thoughts, your bad behaviors. Okay, because there's, there's an application now in the gospel, and I think that's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because all these things are true, because you are in Christ. Now, Christ is your life. Put to death that which is of your human nature, your sinful nature. And that takes a lifetime <laughs> in a good community, <laughs> encouraging us. And even then at the end, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will reign with him in glory and it will be only because of his grace. And that puts us in a good place. Okay? We will end there for today. We'll, we'll try to finish up some of the things that we see in Colossians next week. But I want you to think about some of the implications of number two, the impact of unbelievers of our union with Christ, because we are in Christ, what difference should that make? In my thinking, in my acting, in my doing, in my being, in daily life. And we can start with a conversation on that next week about the impact of believers, unbelievers of our union with Christ. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Go with us now. We do desire to reflect to a watching world the glory of Christ. We can only do that as we are reminded that we are in Him. And He is in us. So will you lead?